you found the Winding Roads Podcast. My name is Isaac Redinger. Each week, my guests and I talk about cars. Our own cars, our past cars, cars we're excited about, how we were bitten by the car enthusiast bug, and more. Hop in, buckle up, and join me for another great drive. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back. I have Moose back on again. Uh, we've got a few things to talk about since you were on last. You've been traveling and doing some driving, so um, glad to have you back. How have you been? Been great, thank you. Thanks for having me back on. So the last time we spoke, you were just about to head to Utah uh, to meet up with the Everyday Driver guys and some other listeners. Um, how did that go? I know you weren't able to take the Jag like you wanted. To, you wanted to take the Jag originally, right? I would have loved to, um, but it it was a. I think it would have been close to three thousand miles round trip, maybe more. than You were going to rent a Vanderhall. I was looking at a Vanderhall, yeah, and then the yeah, weather yeah. was questionable, so I. Had to so what did out. you end up renting then? So I went for a 2022 BMW M850i, which is okay. the four-door, not the not the Cooper okay. convertible. Um, that was basically a. It was largely based on uh, the availability. It was set for unlimited miles, and the trip took a little over 800 miles to do total, which is pretty hard to get on a uh, on a Turo. So sure. that definitely helped with the affordability of it. And it was the next best thing. It was a good blend of those items, both the affordability from a tour perspective and the fun car. To did drive. you have an idea how much mileage you were going to need or how did you know that going in? I had a pretty good idea that it was going to be about that 800 or so miles, give or take. I talked to, okay. uh, to Mandy Combs. She's on the, she's one of the um, staff for every driver who put the event together and, uh, she gave us that estimation based on the route she had ahead of us. What was your Turo experience like? Well, so I had a really bad one and I had a really great one. Uh, so okay. I was in Utah for the meetup, of course, but I went early to visit a college friend who's in Salt Lake City and decided to have a, an extra Turo day ahead of time just for funsies because there's a lot of great roads around Utah and Salt Lake, well, Salt Lake City specifically that we weren't going to see because we were mostly going south. So... I rented a Porsche Macan, which again, kind of a best blend of, of availability and, uh, and pricing. And it was a horrible experience, uh, both from a, the car was a rebranded title, which I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to oh. have on Turo, uh, which had a lot of reliability issues associated with it. I didn't get stranded, but just made the experience really worse. And, sure. uh, the guy who, who rented it to me both told me I had to be back ahead of the original agreed upon time and also didn't put license plates on it. So I was driving illegally. <laughs> uh, so that was great. That's a whole bunch of wrong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he was running a dealership and, and so ran a Turo business on the side. And uh, really disappointing because I think the car had a lot more potential than what I actually experienced. Yeah, that would definitely be a sour taste in your mouth. Was that before or after you picked up the BMW? That was, I believe, the day before I picked up the BMW. Maybe it was okay. two days before. And I remember reaching out to the, the owner of the BMW and said, hey, like, just kind of wanted to touch base again. Like, I just had this really bad experience. Like, you know, I just want to kind of make sure everything is, is good. And he assured me it would I would not have the case with his car. And that was the case. It, excellent. You know, checked in on me shortly, you know, half hour after I picked up the car to ask, hey, is everything good? And otherwise never had any issues. Um and the car was in excellent shape. So, I mean, it was brand new as well, but right. clean when I picked it up and, and nothing to worry about. So that's good. Are yeah. you originally from the East coast? I know you're currently in Virginia right now. Are you originally from the East coast? Yes. I grew up in the same area I'm in now. Okay. Yeah. What, what was the biggest notice 
thing you noticed um, from the Utah area uh, as far as like driving roads and things like that? I would say the biggest piece is the amount of different scenery types you could see in a short period of time. Virginia and a lot of the East Coast is uh, a lot of um, uh, like woods, heavily wooded areas, and uh, a lot of the uh, middle ground between you know flat and and mountains. So you have a lot of hills. Plus, the Appalachian Mountains in general are are not nearly as as high elevation as mm-hmm. like the the Rockies. In Utah, you could see kind of everything. You get desert, you get mountains, you get forest. Uh, a lot of the rock formations and, and such that are out there near like Escalante, for example. Uh, so that was probably the biggest surprise was just the variation of scenery that you would get. And okay. within the same like set of four or five hours, you could see three or four different types of scenery. That's cool. Yeah, it was a really neat experience. Had, have you ever been out there before? Not to Utah. I've been to other areas within that southwestern region, okay. uh, California, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, but I hadn't been to, to Utah, which is similar to Nevada in many ways, but definitely has its own nice elements to it. And I think the scenery variation is, it's probably similar to what you can find in, in Nevada, but I think it's a little more accessible. A in few Utah. months after you got home, you went to the Tale of the Dragon and you took the Miata um, for a couple of reasons. But um, how have you been to the Dragon before? No, this was my first time visiting the okay. Dragon. Yeah. Okay. And you went with a group of people, correct? Yeah, I met up with some other folks from the Everyday Driver uh, okay. group, one of which I saw at the Utah meetup, and the others I, I uh, met for the first time that were okay. also patrons, so I talked to them on their Discord. Nice. So I guess the the tale is probably a lot, like you described earlier, where it's you know woodsy and like lower elevation, probably more rolling hills, things like that. Yeah, so the, the Tale of Dragon is placed in a relatively mountainous part of the Appalachian, so it, it is pretty mountainous. It's not jagged rocks like you'd, like you'd see in the Rockies. I think the elevation gets up to close to, I believe it's in four to 5,000 feet, depending on you know which, uh, which mountain you take. Uh, Tale of Dragon itself is, is, of course, kind of on the side of a mountain, uh, so it's not like you're, you're at, the, at like a peak at any point. Uh, but that area in general is, is, yeah, in that range. But definitely much more uh, forest-type environment, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, the Appalachian in general is, is mostly forest. So, yeah, you saw a lot of that. Uh, and there's a river pretty close by. As How well. did the Miata do? Oh, the Miata did great. Uh, really, that's the better car to have taken between the two. I wanted to take the Jag because a couple of the guys that I met up with really wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. And it would sound great. I mean, would, I mean, I can imagine the V8 you know, echoing off the walls would be be quite an experience to have uh but realistically like a, a low horsepower low weight car is ideal for mm-hmm. you know canyon carving and mountain hooning and that's what we were doing so it it really made sense to take the miata instead um and it was great because i got to one of the other guys has an nc miata so okay. i got to swap with him and kind of get a feel for the differences on them um quick note on the NC Miata, I think it's definitely underrated or it gets more crap than it deserves. Uh, most people think of it as like the fat Miata. Sure. Uh, I believe it is the heaviest of the four generations, but it's still a very light car and it does not feel like out of place as far as Miatas go. Jumping from the from my NB generation, the 01, to his, which I believe was an 05 or 06, um, that had it, 
I mean, it was, it, I felt at home for sure. I mean, little things are different, of course, mm. uh, a little bit more roomy inside, for example, but definitely still felt like it had the Miata spirit to it. So, um, just a quick note, shout out for the NC, but no, it was great. I mean, I would have loved to have had, uh, the coilover suspension that I just bought, uh, and, and had to arrive a few days ago, but the, I did have the Falcon RT660 competition tires, which are 200 treadwear summer tires. Okay. And those held up excellent. I mean, we did have pretty wet rain or it wasn't raining a lot, but it was wet pretty much the entire time. And they performed almost as well as I, as I experienced them in dry weather, like on autocross. That's good. So definitely real happy about that. But yeah, the whole package came together as, as it was a lot of fun. Nice. Um, the NC that's, that's still in the mid twos, mid 2000 pound range, right? Yes, I believe the weight is pretty close to, to t- I believe it's a little under 25, if I remember correctly, okay. but I have to pull up the, the specs to know for sure. It is heavier than the NB, and the NC, or sorry, the ND is actually lighter than my NB. I looked that up today. Really? Off the, off the cuff. Mine weighs from the factory was like 2439, and the ND is 2370-something, I think. Wow. Roughly. I didn't real. I knew they shaved weight off of the NC when they went to the ND, but I didn't realize it had gone that low. That's, that's pretty significant for a modern car. Yeah. So I, I never, I didn't realize it was under 2,400. I mean, even compared to the NC, my car would still feel like a, a boat probably with the exception of the being a mid engine, you know, it's, I, th- I think it's just under 3,100, maybe closer to 3,000 pounds. I mean, while it's not heavy, it, you, you would notice a difference between those two. Weight makes a big difference, but I do think there's a lot to be said for the suspension setup. I mean, the engine setup and location makes a huge difference. There's there's so many different things. If you have a mid-engine car, the way the car rotates is going to be so much different, and the way the weights, you know, where the weight's located. I mean, you, Miatos are 50-50 weight distribution, so you don't get the sense of, like, a heavy front end, of course. Sure. Uh, but if you have a, a you know, a, a quick-responding steering ratio, steering rack, and you have tight suspension that can make up a lot of difference for weight. So I think there's definitely a lot to be said for how the car is tuned. But I mean, yes, obviously the the easiest way to get uh, better handling is, is weight reduction. But there's a lot you can do with suspension for sure. Sure. So. Um, one thing I was just thinking of is my first impression of the NB Miata when I first drove one probably about 20 years ago. Maybe it was early in the NB generation. But uh, I noticed the the steering is almost dirty, especially like at parking lot speeds. Like you turn the wheel and unlike a lot of or most cars, like it's just night and day compared to other cars. And now I'm thinking back on that now and comparing it to my Cayman. And it's the Cayman is more, I guess you could say linear, whereas the ramp up on the on the Miata is that much quicker. And I loved it about the Miata. Um, I assume it's the same with the NC. I don't think I've ever driven one of those. I felt the NC steering was a little bit heavier in a good way. I think I, I, I've i had mixed feelings about my NB steering, but then maybe, okay. again, it's because I have it and I'm used to it. Um, from what I recall of the NC steering rack, I would say its responsiveness and turn in was very similar. Uh, the weight was a little bit different. Uh, I've, I've heard a lot of people say the NB and NA racks are both a little over uh, overpowered from like a power steering perspective. Hmm. Uh, and some people talked about depowering the the rack to get better steering fuel in them hmm. um 
but thinking of how that compared to the 987 steering that I, when I drove the Cayman on the Utah adventure, a couple of them, uh, I definitely felt like I got more road response in, okay. the, in the Cayman uh, and Boxster rack. Uh, personally, I liked the Cayman steering a lot more than the Miata, mostly because of the level of feedback. I mean, I think from like a, a progression standpoint and linearity, I could take either one pretty happily, but I think the, the amount of road feel and response I got from like the tires was, is significantly better in the Porsche steering than what I was getting in the Miata. And that's something that in the future I may look into trying to improve since I do autocross the car and, and generally like to, to have good steering feedback. Of course, everyone does, but uh, looking at things like uh, stiffer rubber bushings in the, in the steering, as well as potentially doing that um, depower tune on the power steering, essentially, uh, I haven't looked into the technical details of how exactly to accomplish it, but I know it is something that people do. So mm-hmm. I know it's a it's something I can look into. Since you sure. mentioned it, and I'm I'm kind of curious now, so I'm going to pick your brain. The Cayman you drove, or the few Caymans, do you know um, what the wheel and tire setups were off the top of your head, like 18s, 19s? I don't recall the steering size. I can tell you, or the, the wheel size, sorry. I drove a 987.1. Cayman S mm-hmm. and I want to say it was on stock wheels and I drove a 981 GTS mm. Boxster uh, and that I believe was also on its stock setup but being a GTS I want to say it was on 19s but at least yeah yeah I don't, I don't recall with certainty and the setups I believe they're both running summer tires but I couldn't tell you which brands they were off I've heard a lot of people mention about the feedback in the steering feel you get with the Caymans and like the Porsches, generally speaking. And either I don't feel it or I don't know what I'm feeling because I feel like mine is while it's direct and I, it goes exactly where I want it and I can feel some things when I bought it, I was expecting to feel more than I do. Um, Maybe it's just because I don't know what I was expecting to feel, but so that's the one thing I've I've noticed about the Cayman is it's not the I don't get as much information as I was expecting, um, so it's interesting for me to hear you say that when you're comparing it to the Miata. Yeah, something I definitely uh, learned on that Utah adventure trip is the like the power and value in doing back to back test drives. Sure. The guys on Everybody Driver talk about that a lot. It's one of their big things they like to try and do is put cars back to back so they can give you the immediate thoughts as they're doing it. Uh, I experienced that with the Caymans and the Boxster going from the 987.1 to the 981 and feeling the steering difference and everything. And it was a back to back situation was was awesome. That was one of the biggest takeaways I had from that adventure was that the value you get in that, which I don't find it surprising, but at the same time, it was like it really doesn't hit you the same way. You're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then you actually go do it and you're like, yeah, this is like 100% clutch. Like you need to do this for sure. And I think that as far as the the feeling goes, it's interesting that kind of your perspective on it, because for me, even going between the 987 and the 981, there was a notable difference in steering feel. And I, and I said while I was on the adventure, I liked almost everything about the 981 GTS more except the steering. The steering was the one thing that I was like, that's the, what the 987 has that I really want. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, the the package, the whole package you get with the 981 is probably what I would take just because yeah. of the other benefits you get. Uh, but but that was the steering was like kind of the the big thing about the 987 that I really enjoyed. 
and I, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, you get used to a certain thing and that's kind of what you expect. Um, I mean, if you drove a lot of other, I mean, I feel like it's one of the best steering experiences I've had in mm-hmm. general. I mean, I don't have a ton of, you know, particular exotic uh, driving experiences, but at the same time, you know, having driven Miatas and other things uh, that are also known for having one of the better steering setups amongst current cars that you can get today, it was a significant improvement, I thought. Now, I didn't drive a Miata and it came in back-to-back, but from, from a bit of a more distant feel, it was, to me, I thought it was significantly better. Sure. What tire setup are you running? I do wonder if maybe the tires have something to do with it. That was one of my thoughts too, because uh, it can make a difference. So my stock setup is uh, Factory 19s and uh, Michelin Pilot Supersport. Obviously, when I switch from my 19-inch summers to my 17-inch winters, a lot changes, and so I can feel a difference yeah. there. I don't know if the feel changes; it's just a response changes. Like obviously, there's more sidewall, softer sidewall, softer tread, more tread. Mm-hmm. So there's a delay and just um, a, a grip limit um, yeah. difference, obviously, but that's that's to be expected. But you're reminding me of the one back-to-back scenario I can think of um, to where I probably am feeling more information in my Cayman than I realize because I have gotten used to it, like you said. The back-to-back I can think of is my father-in-law used to have a G37 Coupe uh, in the rear wheel drive and a manual transmission. And yeah. my wife has a G37 sedan, all wheel drive. Those it's night and day. Like her car feels like every other car, you know, it's not muted. It's still a great steering, um, steering rack. And, and it's one of the better handling cars, especially for its day. It was always pretty, you know, lauded for its handling and stuff, but driving the, the, rear wheel drive car and not having the all wheel drive system in there, you can definitely feel a difference. So I, I agree. I would have to drive another car back to back to say, Oh yeah, I now feel what I wasn't feeling in the Cayman because I have something to put it up against more closely. Yeah. I think having an all wheel drive set up when you're adding, you know, transactional differential into the mix and having to put power through the front wheels definitely impacts the steering feel. And I and I don't know enough about the you know G thirty seven X lineup in terms of how its all wheel drive system is put together, but I can certainly imagine. And well, in most all wheel drive systems, there's always some some uh, power going to the front wheels, if not majority of the time. Now the platform is a rear wheel drive built platform, so I would mm-hmm. expect it's typically rear wheel bias. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could see both between having more weight. And just the the added components in the steering system, uh, because you've got the additional uh, powertrain piece in there, could definitely affect it. But I would I would be interesting interested to know because I know that you mentioned you had the Pilot Super Sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if the 4s's or the Continental Extreme Context Sports would give you significant difference in feel. I know the the ECS are a popular set. It's the one I'm looking at buying for the Jaguar mm-hmm. um, mostly because of pricing is better, but also it's people have said it has a little bit better wet performance. And since the car would be kind of a daily use for me, even in the summer, um, it's only a good pick, 
Yeah. I'm curious if uh, if you ever get the chance of trying one of those brands, if you notice the difference. Yeah, um, I think you're on the right line of thinking with the with the steering feel. I've watched a lot of tire reviews over the years, trying to decide what tire to get and everything. This car came with with Super Sports by the prior owner, uh, and when I I've been thinking about what to replace them with when they wear out. Um, and along the way, I've watched multiple tire reviews, and one that I really like is a guy on YouTube. Uh, his channel is tire reviews and he's a British guy and he does extensive testing, um, on a track and things like that with, uh, five or six different tires back to back. And one thing that he usually does note comparing a Michelin to a continental or a Pirelli or a Goodyear, uh, summer tire is the, I think the Michelin tends to give up a little bit of feel, but, Usually what they prioritize is more wet grip. And compared to some of the other models, there are one or two models that can match it or slightly better it in wet wet traction. But the overall package, I'm happy with them. I might consider another tire, but realistically, I would probably consider going with like a Cup 2 just for the fun of it to see, um, you know, what that was like. But because it's my daily, I considered really should I go for a cup two because I would lose some rain traction, you know, and you get a summer thunderstorm here or there in the afternoon on my way home from work. There have been times where I've known that my, my tires were going to have the traction I need and I didn't have any worries. So that would be one thing I would definitely give up. Yeah. That, I mean, you would, I would be, I would be shocked if you didn't notice a significant difference going to cup twos, I'm sure. I do agree, though. I think you're in the right mindset of if you're daily driving the car. One, I mean, the expenses are going to go up significantly with Cup 2s. Yeah. Uh, but then also, yeah, the wet performance of, you know, if, if it's your daily car and you get a thunderstorm, are you going to wait it out? Probably not. So right. uh, keeping that in mind. I mean, it might be worth doing a little more investigation to see how they handle. But I do know a guy who unfortunately lost his GT3 uh, on the way up to the Utah Adventure. And it was a tire incident oh. with rain or standing water. Uh, and those GT3 cars, I don't recall exactly which tire they come on, but they're they're track tires. I don't think he had Cup 2s on the car. Mm-hmm. I think he actually had a, a Pirelli set. Okay. Um, I could be mistaken, though, but I'm, I don't recall him saying he had Cup 2s. Okay. I think they were a different set. But in any case, I think the same principle applies, though, ultimately. When sure. you're looking at track tires, most of the time you're going to have a, a notable difference, mostly in the hydroplaning area with standing yeah. water, which was his case. Um, hitting three standing water puddles in a row and the third one lost it. So Oof. yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it still impresses me that I remember the first time I drove on a set of summer tires was I believe also the super sport. Cause it was uh, when my wife and I had just gotten married, I was driving her dad's car once and it was just wet. Like it wasn't raining or it was a light rain, but I was surprised at how much traction there still was. I was expecting a summer tire, not knowing anything that, you know, it was only going to be good when it was dry and it was a damp road and I could drive like normal basically. And now commuting on these tires every day, there have been several times I got caught in thunderstorms during the summer. And like, unless it was like rivers of water going across, like I had no hydroplane issues. I was, I'm, I'm impressed. Like I have no reason to, to dislike these tires at all. 
Yeah, a good summer tire should still perform well in the rain as long as you're looking at summers and not necessarily track or competition so much. Right. The Falcons I had did great with it being damp, but I, if we had significant rainfall or standing water, I would have been a lot more concerned about how they were going to hold up and sure. have definitely pulled it back. Okay, so we were talking about the Jag. What's going on with that? Where, what's, how's the Jag doing? Oh, man. The Jag <laughs> is not in the best of health. Uh I'll have to try not to ramble a little bit. <laughs> the uh, the differential started leaking from the pinion seal, and I initially didn't wasn't overly concerned. Uh, I actually took it to my local Jag dealer to have the differential fluid changed before taking it to Tail of Dragon, and this is the origin story of why I didn't go, uh, is because they found there was a leak in the differential, and it was down about half a quart, which is about half capacity of the differential. Uh, and there's no great way of me being able to tell over how many miles it lost that fluid. So I sure. decided there it wasn't worth the risk of, because it's a uh, eight and a half hour drive. I don't recall the mileage, more than 400, I think, each way, plus the mileage we'd have while we're down there. So I said I wasn't, I wasn't going to risk potentially blowing up the differential, taking it down there and running out of oil in it. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I, I knew that the, these differentials had issues with overheating, uh, which is the reason why I took it there in the first place to make sure that, Hey, like frequent fluid changes will typically help prevent that significantly. Found the leak, took it to a independent shop to get an estimate on fixing the, the pinion seal. Looked good. Said to go ahead and do it. They replaced it. And unfortunately I both got additional bearing noise, uh, based on the reinstallation. There's, there's going to be some, some shifting of parts to get the, the pinion, everything hooked back up correctly. Uh, and also the seal broke again. Oh. Uh, now I don't know if that was, uh, an installation error or if that was uh, potential of like the bearings moving because of the extra added play and that causing the seal to, to essentially tear or move out of place and fail. Uh, I couldn't say, and that's what the mechanic postulated when I reached out to him again. But unfortunately that's led to a replacement differential on order uh, because Jaguar doesn't offer rebuild kits it's really essentially crate replacement or used replacement. And I found, well, we were lucky that I found a, a differential out of a 2017 SVR uh, with 22,000 miles on it, which is a little less than half of what my existing car has. And it's the, it's a superseded part number, but it's compatible with what I have now. So in theory, there should be no issue. It's a simple swap, which is okay. really less labor than a rebuild. Um, and the plan is just essentially to, to replace the the drive axle seals and then be, just be able to bolt it right back in. Uh, so fingers crossed on that because that's a, I mean, it's a pretty big bill. And I kind of went into the car knowing their repairs would be more pricey. And sure. I kind of just, you know, the whole don't cry or spill milk mentality. Uh, just the, there is some frustration though with the, you know, driving in an hour each way to a specialty shop, get this thing replaced. And then it really left the shop in worse condition than when I took it in since I had the added bearing noise. But with bearings, it's kind of a, you know, 50, 50 shot on if you, if you end up being okay, or if you end up having, uh, you know, increased failure. So I got the, the latter unfortunately. So. Oh, I'm hoping that she gets fixed pretty soon, though. Uh, that was the only differential available in North America. So there's not a huge supply. And a replacement differential, I believe, is about $3,800 for the part. Okay. So 
So uh, hopefully this this replacement diff comes into the shop. They check it all out and it looks good, and it'll be you know one more one more trip there, and she'll be back. In the it shop. sounds like this is the case, but um, I was actually thinking earlier. I was going to ask you if it's like an electronic limited slip differential, and if so, now that we're replacing it with, or you're replacing it with. Um, I guess you could say an upgraded, like a model above it. Does it, I assume it's got the same guts. Yes. So it's not clear to me if the superseding part number means there was any sort of notable revision. Uh, that part is unclear. I did look on some Jaguar forms and, and found that there seems to be a, uh, it doesn't seem to be an uncommon issue to have the pinion seal fail, including in newer vehicles, 17s and 18s. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that there's something significant in terms of redesign. Uh, as far as the electronics go, it is an electron- electronically controlled diff. And my understanding is as long as they swap the uh, motor so that it's using the same motor as the one my car was programmed with, it'll be fine. Uh, and that seems to be a pretty easy bolt replacement. Okay. So fingers crossed on that as well. Because uh, yeah. otherwise, you, I guess you have to reprogram either the transmission ECU or, or something separate to tell the car, hey, this is the differential you're working with now. Kind of a, a complicated piece. Now, I, I mean, I do think the benefits you get because it electronically controls the clutch, so you have, you know, a much faster responding and, and different variation and range of how the differential responds. Um, and my understanding is that the, the EDIF aspect of it doesn't isn't a, isn't a frequent failure point. It's really more the seal that tends to fail. Uh, or some people have... Uh, hypothesized that they get overfilled or underfilled from factory, which has led to like premature failures. But we haven't there. I haven't seen any kind of official bulletins from Jaguar or anything that really, it really gives us a full picture, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. But like I said, hopefully, hopefully it's, this is a, this will be the last time I have to worry about the diff for a while, but I do plan on doing what I would consider aggressive uh, preventative maintenance and we'll probably change the fluid every roughly year, 10,000 miles, especially since I'm probably going to take it to a track event once or twice a year. That way I can make sure that it's, it's definitely still in good health and mm-hmm. potentially even get an oil analysis done on it for funsies to see, you know, Hey, how does everything look in there? Were we seeing any signs of where that suggests there's a problem or am I, am I good with this trying to change? Is VRR the closest track to you? It's not the closest track. The closest track is Dominion Raceway, which okay. is I believe in Fredericksburg or okay. in that area. So north of Richmond, but VAR is really the destination track. I would say okay. that's the closest one. That's like people are going to come from a distance to come to, sure. to visit and, and drive on. Yeah. So would you take the car to Dominion? I assume, just because of proximity. Uh, I'd probably do both. I definitely want to take it to VIR. VIR is definitely a more expensive venue, um, but it's also it's at least nationally renowned as being one of the best race courses we have in the U.S. So. I'm excited that it's within a three-hour drive of where I'm at. Uh, Dominion, I haven't been to, and I'm honestly not very familiar with the track, but I have been told from some autocross folks that they had been hesitant to to visit the track for a while because they had a little bit of a dangerous wall, or a, a part of the track was designed in a way that you could you could hit the car or hit the wall with the car relatively easily if you made a, a screw up. Um, my understanding is they made some, some design adjustments or maybe added some tires in a position or something to the effect to, to lower the risk, but I'm not intimately familiar enough. But I'll probably still go at some point, even if I take the Miata to 
much lower horsepower car, of course, so sure. much lower risk of, of flinging off the track or something, I'm sure. <laughs> Going the opposite direction, it sounds like Summit Point might be about the same distance for you as VIR. I think that Summit Point is a bit further. I haven't okay. actually put that on the map to compare, yeah. but Summit Point is another location that I thought, well, hey, you know, if I'm looking to do track events, um, you know, getting some diversity is always great. So sure. uh, I would definitely went, look into and consider them as a as an option as well for destination. I visited that track a couple of times for a drift event they did. Um, I don't know if they still do it or not, but they were. I was invited with some friends to. Uh, go to a drift drift event there a few years in a row and that was a lot of fun so it's in the middle of nowhere really which i'm sure a lot of tracks are like that it is out in west virginia so i wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say anything out there is is uh you know any kind of metropolis yeah uh, but it it does sound like it'd be a it'd be a fun place to go mm-hmm. uh drift events are fun i went to one recently at a, at a small track this local called langley speedway which is just an oval track uh, but they had a, a pretty fun drift event with some uh, like certified amateur drivers, so to speak. It sounds funny, certified amateur, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they had qualified to to compete in events. So and and they clearly a number of them had some pretty pretty solid drift experience. Um, so those are definitely fun. I mean, I think it's arguably one of the better sports from a spectacle standpoint mm. uh, as far as motorsports go, just because you know you're flinging smoke and tires over sliding cars and. It's definitely a, a type of motorsport that uh, plays well into into showmanship for sure. Definitely, yeah. And you can see from a visual perspective, the car is always moving in different directions, and like the suspension is 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 adjusting, and the the like that's why I've heard it said that that's why like grip driving is somewhat boring to watch because realistically, if it's done right, you know it's uneventful to watch the car go around a corner as opposed to drifting. It's everything's exaggerated and extreme and it's more visually appealing to watch. I would definitely agree with that. Cause yeah, if you, if you look, think of uh, when you watch a lot of road courses racing like Grand Prix or something to that effect. Yeah. It looks like they're kind of just like following this line very nicely and smoothly, which is it under uh, it makes it look slower than it is yeah. for sure. Uh, and but with with drifting, yeah, the way the car is is being flung across and the the way the physics are being handled so much differently than than grip driving uh, definitely makes it more visual visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of respect to be had for drift drivers because I when growing up I was like ah drifting whatever uh, and didn't really think too much of it. But you know, having gotten more interested in motorsport in general, just everything cars. Uh, I think it's really neat and I would love the chance to try my hand at, you know, some kind of a learning school or something. There, there are some events in Richmond. Uh, there's a raceway up there, one of the NASCAR tracks and they do drift events up there. There's a drift uh, training course. So one day, maybe I don't have yeah. a car that would be well suited for it unless, well, the Jack can spin tires easily, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not trying to do suspension tuning and all that for drifting on it. So. Your Jag, that was a couple of years before they made it all-wheel drive for the R, correct? I believe it was the final year before all-wheel okay. drive was the only option. It might have been seven, minus a 15. It may have been 2017 when they made it all-wheel drive only. Uh, but I, I did specifically want it rear-wheel drive partly because I just I just wanted the fun of being able to sling the back tires around. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can still do in the all-wheel drive, from my understanding, but it's... It, 
there's not an argument to be made that it's definitely probably a better track car being all wheel drive from the from the ability to put down the power. I actually took the Jag Autocross recently, uh, and that was a lot of fun. But it is hard to to keep the power down for sure. Yeah, so, I, you sent me that video, and I'm going to include a link if you don't mind in the show notes um, yeah. for people to watch it. But towards the end of the video you sent me when you're accelerating down like the long straight in that sequence, you could see it was like squirming. It's like it was fighting for traction and it looked great to watch. I was between the sound and watching the car fight to maintain traction was, was, it was fun to watch. Yeah. And that wasn't all season tires. So, you know, caveat to the Jag there, it doesn't have the, the rubber that would really be able to put down power better. Um, and it was kind of hard to keep heat in the tires, which in some ways is, is a little better for, for the all seasons. Yeah. But in any case, it, traction control was off, fully off. I started with it on and it was, it was holding back the throttle too much. So I wasn't able to get on the power soon enough. Uh, so I turned it all the way off. And I think that was either the second or third run with the traction control fully off to get a sense of, you know, trying to get my, my, you know, throttle management in a place where I could could keep it from sliding around too much but yeah you can definitely see it uh squirrel around there at the at the end while i'm trying to get it you know down to the floor yeah it was a it was fun to watch because autocross is not an event that really lends itself to that size of a car like you're getting a bit big for that kind of a car but it's definitely you know still fun as a driver to do it um and it was it was fun to watch so obviously your miata would be better suited but more boring to watch, I guess you could say. Like, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, it doesn't sound as good. So from that perspective alone, it's kind of like <laughs> at a disadvantage. Uh, it is definitely the primary car for autocross of the yeah. two. Uh, like I did get the coilovers for it and the tires for it and all that. Um, the Jag is is pretty big and pretty heavy for autocross. So yes, I would say those those are. Definitely true, and I'm sure it's not. I don't think anybody be arguing the F types a better a better autocross yeah. car, yada. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a ton of fun, and I'm going to take it again because it's just a hoot to drive it, and everyone yeah. loves how it sounds and it yeah. looks. And uh, so, even if it's not ideal, it's just a lot of fun to do it. And we have a winter series going on now that's that's not uh, like a, a championship style scored. Uh, system so it's just a you know each day has has winners and whatnot but not nothing you're doing for a series mm-hmm. so bring the jag out and have so fun. any updates on the miata you just kind of driving that one around yeah so the miata has uh a few updates there let's see so i did get the coilovers suspension upgrade i decided to go with the v-max coilover setup from flying miata they have uh, i went with the track spring setup so it's got a little bit of a stiffer uh, spring setup on it. I haven't had a chance to install it yet, um, but that was really the the main piece that it needs to really get in the right place for autocross. So I had a lot of fun with it this past season. I will give a little self pat on the back. I was a novice champion for our for our season nice. this, uh, in our region, so I was really excited about that. And so you know, big thanks to the Miata for that one. Give her a pat, on, you know, the next time I see her. But. Uh, the suspension was the biggest thing because it's it's still on stock suspension with 140 some thousand on it. So it was definitely you know you could see if you, there's other videos of the of the Miata on autocross in there on my channel and it's got a couple of uh, times where you can really see the weight transfer in the car leaning a lot. So getting that under control 
is probably, I talked to another guy there and he said, you're going to get as much benefit with the coilovers as you got from the tires going from all seasons to the, the Falcon tires. You know, he said, you're going to get almost the same level of benefit again, going from the stock suspension to the, to a good, a proper coilover setup. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to that on the car. I did also get a shifter rebuild kit. The, the transmission on the car is not feeling amazing. And I had another guy who uh, I met up with on the tail of dragon trip. You know, we, we swapped cars a lot while we were there. And so I had him drive the Miata. He has an NA and also autocrosses. And he recommended the shifter rebuild kit would, would probably solve the issues I'm having. And, and the issue is primarily a little bit of, of grinding, mostly going into second gear, a little bit in the third. Um, and sometimes the shift gate doesn't feel like it wants to fully comply. And he's thinking that the shifter rebuild kit will definitely help with that. So uh, I went with a kit from Moss Miata, I believe, which has the the brass bearing upgrade, uh, which is a, I think it's where the the shifter turret sits in the, in this bearing and made of brass instead of plastic. Okay. Gives it a little bit more rigidity. Sure. Which helps with the, the shifter feel. So need to get that installed as well. So I think she's definitely in, in line for some, uh, some garage time. Yeah. To get her in, in prepped for the 23 season. Have you done sway bars already or is that on the radar as well? So it has an upper uh, or the front sway bar has been upgraded to the racing beat setup. Uh, the rear sway bar is still stock, and I've been told that the rear sway bar on Miatas are pretty finicky. Uh, if you go too big, it definitely impacts your ability to keep the rear end in place you know, pretty pretty poorly. But a lot of people have recommended the Mazda Speed uh, rear sway bar, what they put in the, in the Mazda Speed Miatas, the 04 MX-5s. Uh, it's a little bit stiffer than the existing one, a little bit bigger, but it's it's not so much so that it really is just a small bump, which is the right level it would need. Sure. But I would say the, the rear sway bar is, is not something I'm jumping to next. I'm probably looking more at, at bushings as a potential feature. By now, upgrade. the bushings are all, what, 20 years old, essentially. So even just yeah. changing, if you went with new factory bushings, you'd probably notice a difference as well. I probably would. I think in, in my what I'm planning on doing would, would be also the same thing with, is doing the Mazda speed, or I think they're called Mazda competition, which is a 40% stiffer rubber bushing. Okay. So I, I do like to, to still daily drive the car and have not daily, but road drive the car. So having, you know, something that still keeps NVH in check, but right. gives it a little bit stiffer setup would be, would be nice. So that's a potential for the future. Uh, we'll just see how, you know, each step goes with coilovers. I want to take a very uh, staged approach with it or, you know, take each step, and see how it impacts the car's difference since this is right. a, a pretty new realm for me. Yeah. It's I'm pretty excited to just kind of see, okay, I just changed coilovers, like how much of an impact does that make? And you know, if we do, you know, maybe I do uh control arm bushings, you know, how does that impact it and kind of get a sense for it that way. And even just switching to coilovers, you're gonna have a lot of an you're gonna have a long adjustment phase to, you know, okay what do I like? How can I adjust it? Cause there's so much adjustability there, you know, for the, um, the preload, the, I'm sure you can adjust the jounce and rebound, right. Or the compression and rebound on the shocks. So I believe just... it has rebound adjustment. I don't believe okay. it has the other two levels of adjustment, but it does okay. also have some, some height adjustment with the, uh, uh, the, like the companion spring. Right. I'm not remembering the term, but you, you have your, your main spring. I believe it's helper spring. Maybe that's the word for it. Um, 
but you can adjust that to to adjust right height some which will also change the you know the spring load a little bit yeah so all that's going to be a process in figuring out what you like you know before you even say okay i like this and this is what i noticed different from the old setup and then, yeah, I think it'll be a fun process, definitely a learning experience to just kind of figure out what effects or what change it does, has what effect. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm not a big wrencher, but at the same time, like being able to improve my hand, my driver skills by, you know, looking for those changes and kind of being able to think through the process and say, okay, well, now that you know, the car's weight transfer is happening differently. How does that affect my ability to, to put down power or affect turn-in or, you know, various aspects like that? Uh, going through a slalom, like, you know, your weight management is going to be vastly improved with a coilover over the stock suspension. Uh, so how does that impact the ability to to improve my times and stuff like that? So that's that's the exciting part is really knowing that I'm going to be able to continue to improve myself as a driver. The shifter, you mentioned about a shifter rebuild. Are those mounted like in the tail of the transmission or is there linkage? Um, like for example, I'm thinking of the Mustang world, my O2 Mustang that you, I replaced the shifter on that, the shift lever. And you basically underneath the boot, you take all, take out four bolts and it pulls right out of the tail of the transmission. But then in O5, when they went to the retro style, it has like a linkage that is, mounted adjacent to the tail shaft and then it has it connects that way so uh your viewers will have to correct me if i'm wrong on this but i believe it is is the former so it's it's essentially like a direct connection i don't believe there's there's separate linkage okay uh, you're you're able to do the direct control because it's the it's a turret mount and i don't know if that piece is relevant to if it uses the the separate linkage to to control okay. it or not um but I do believe it does direct control. Essentially. The last car in the garage we have to get an update on is a Prius. What big news have you got on with the Prius? <laughs> I left this one for last because it's the most important. The most important, yes. <laughs> uh, so the Prius, it's funny we're talking about the Prius, but hey, why not? Let's do it. Um, <laughs> Prius is a great daily. So, you know, hey, from a from a reliability, gets you where he needs to go, mm-hmm. save yourself some money on gas and all that. You know, I'm not complaining. So uh, the Prius had some issues with uh, maintenance. So I don't recall if we talked about it previously, but some of the issues with some rough idling and things that it had, um, yeah, it had problems where we under low low load, the car would would run real rough, like it felt like misfiring. Turns out it was misfiring, and you know, here's a it's actually kind of an interesting story because I went to do a number of things trying to fix it. So um, did a seafoam treatment to it, which is you know like the top motor treatment, fuel treatment. Um, I forget the third option now, but kind of played through all the different um, options we had to try and work through it with seafoam to clear out you know, any kind of carbon buildup. Um, looked at coilovers, no problems with the coilovers. Uh, eventually, I got to deciding, okay, well, let's do spark plugs, but I had just replaced them earlier that year, and I was like, I don't see how spark plugs would be the problem. So I, it's, I hadn't really looked. I feel like that would have been I would have looked at it sooner, you know, were they original or didn't know when they were replaced, but... And went ahead and pulled them, and they all looked pretty much fine until I got to the to the last one, and I didn't even notice it at first. But the the insulation uh, or like the insulator was dropping down onto the uh, like the the J uh, the actual spark. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember what it's called now, of course, but uh, you know your gap. It'll essentially completely yeah. um, shut that gap up, you know, down with insulation. Okay. So there's no way to create spark, and it seemed like as as you gave it more throttle, 
it would kind of clear itself up. And I believe it was actually putting enough pressure in the cylinder to push the jet, like the insulation up back where it needed to be. Wow. Uh, so that was really, I, mean, I actually unique. hadn't seen a, a, a failure like that before in my time yeah. at least. Um, so it seems like it's in better shape after replacing those spark plugs. Um, I don't know that it's a hundred percent resolved uh, and that occasionally when the car first starts up, I noticed that that little slight knock that I was hearing, uh, you know, not pre-ignition knock necessarily, but just the way the, the motor, uh, you know, rough idles initially. So there could be some other pieces going on with it, but I think that it's definitely in better shape than it was. It does have some oil consumption as well, which is, frustrating considering it's a Prius and the, you know, the whole idea of trying to be as you know eco-friendly as possible and then it's consuming oil, but uh, it's apparently not an uncommon issue that they, that, that is the third generation. So that runs into, uh, and I am kind of under the impression that there's an issue with the piston rings getting gummed up and allowing oil to get through um, because there's no sign of an oil leak, not a significant oil leak at least, but uh, it's probably burning a quart every 600 to a thousand miles roughly. Uh, so enough that it's pretty significant when you only use four quarts. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the update on the Prius. Nothing, okay. uh, nothing too crazy other than just some, some, you know, high mileage maintenance type items. Uh, but it still does the job. Great. We can still throw the dogs in there cause I'm not trying to put the dogs in the Jag or the, <laughs> or the Miata. Yeah. That wouldn't uh, work well. Yeah. My, my girlfriend and I had a conversation about that and, She's like, well, why not put the one of the dogs in the Jag? And I'm like, well, because it's it's nice leather, and I don't want them in there. <laughs> it's going to create all the spur and stuff. And really, we we kind of went back and forth about it a little bit, uh, kind of a, a little playful argument, if you will. And uh, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm concerned her her claws are going to scratch some of the material that's in there, like the console or anything like that. And then she pulled out a pair of little dog socks, and she's like, here you go, solution to <laughs> the problem. And I said, well, maybe. And then I've conveniently not brought it up as a as an option. Yeah. Then. Well, then you you can neglect to tell her this story. But recently we had an R8 come in. It was like a 22, mm-hmm. 21 R8. And the guy had us remove the passenger seat and create a false floor so that he could take his dog for a ride. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. You say a false floor. Is it just that you wanted a, like you wanted a smooth surface? Flat. Yeah. 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 So basically take out the seat and it's got you know, ripples, if you want to call it that across the floor. So the technician just put in a couple of blocks and a, and a board and he carpeted it. So it's, you know, grippy and, and safe and everything. And yeah. So now this guy can take his R8. He's got a single seater R8 and he's got a dog spot. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I would say that I would not expect to see a dog hanging out in the R8. Yeah. We did we did look for pictures of dogs and exotic cars and stuff to try and she was trying to prove a point and I did see some dogs and some Lamborghinis and things like that. So hey, I mean people love their pets as, as much as they do uh their precious cars. So <laughs> Yeah. For for us it would not work because our dogs are a hundred and hundred and ten pounds. So mm. like if I tried to put him in the in the Cayman, the while it has a lot of headroom, it wouldn't work for him when he was sitting on the seat because he's you know, he's a big dog, so it wouldn't work for me if I wanted to. Yeah, I question the comfort of the Jag for for our dogs as well. They're they're about uh, seventy five and eighty five pounds, so definitely not as big. But you know, they're gonna have to sit upright. Essentially, yeah. there is no like, kind of an opportunity to lay down or anything. Do you have any plans for the winter? Any any travel or um, 
we've gone over some maintenance and some upgrades going on with the cars. Anything else coming up on the radar between now and spring? Well, so I think there's going to be some some research being done mostly. I'm looking to see about a different set of wheels, well, an additional set of wheels and tires for the F-Type. Okay. Uh, right now it's on the the original 20-inch uh, blade wheels that came on it and the all seasons I mentioned earlier. I think that it would be great to have a set of high-performance summer tires or maybe even kind of track-focused tires. Um, it would probably end up just being uh, Conti ECSs or, or uh, Pilot Sport 4S tires mm-hmm. just because of the, the pricing and availability and the ability to still daily it. Uh, but I also want to be able to drive it in the wintertime. So really, and in, in winters here can get you know below 30, so I need to have... Um, you know, all season or I don't really think we get enough weather to justify dedicated winters. Right. Uh, But I think the all seasons are maybe all weathers, depending. Uh, One of the two would be, you know, reasonable choices for, for colder climate. Uh, And so I would like the ability to do that because I do want to track the Jag uh, at least a couple times. I know I recognize it's probably not the best from a consumable standpoint to, to take a a heavier F type out on track. Uh, But at the same time, it's, it just deserves it. And, I'd love to get the added track experience. So mm-hmm. I've been considering wheel options. Uh, the bolt pattern on the F-Type is unfortunately a not very common setup. I believe it's like a 5X108 millimeter, which mm-hmm. is kind of an odd uh, bolt pattern. I don't think there I've are, ever heard of that one. But they get pretty pricey. I believe it. It's it's the same with Porsche wheels because it's a 5 by 130 and P- Porsche is the only one that uses that bolt pattern that I'm aware of. Like, there's definitely a Porsche tax there. Like, wheels are more expensive that fit Porsches. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've done some research and found, and I just, it's really just taking the time to kind of, like, catalog the options I have and what the pricing looks like and, and really just also figuring out, do I think I'll like them on the car? Um, the 20-inch wheels are standard. They're usually, I think they're, they're nine and a half inch wide on the front and ten and a half inch wide on the rear, uh, but the diameter is is not staggered. So I would probably tend to lean towards sticking with the stock size wheels and just get a second set, mostly because it makes it a little bit easier in terms of tire sizing and everything. Um, but also, you know, I had I had a friend advise that you know don't necessarily compensate driver skill by grip by having just a bunch of added grip. Yeah. So he said, you know, you're probably better off sticking with the stock size just to, you know, make sure you're not um, filling, you know, skills with grip instead. Yeah. Uh, which I think is fair. And, and also like obviously having a not, I mean, I wouldn't go bigger in terms of diameter for sure. I wouldn't want to go any bigger than 20. I know it can support 21s cause that's what the SVR comes with. Uh, but I think 20s are, are plenty large. I'd even considered downsizing the 19s at one point, but then you just add complexity again to the the geometry of, of what you're working with. Uh, so I think I'll probably try and find the standard the standard size in terms of both diameter and width, uh, but then just determining what, uh, what wheels I want to go with. And wheels you can definitely go down a rabbit hole with. Um, I'm trying to stay relatively, you know, straightforward with it. But I also want to make sure I get wheels that are both fitting for the car style-wise and quality. Sure. Uh, so that's 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 been kind of the trying to figure out brands that offer the right sizing, 
Uh, there's plenty of brands that will offer custom bolt patterns, but you quickly add costs when you're doing custom. Uh, I know like uh, HRE is a good example that of a, of a nice set of, or a nice provider that does custom patterns, but you're looking at typically at least 1700 per wheel. Yeah. Uh, and that's really notably more than I would like to spend because right. I would like to keep it below 3000 for a setup I can. And I'm, I, there are options to do that. I've seen some for about 2600 but it it becomes tough. And I so it's just kind of going to come down to, am I going to find something I'm happy with the price point on? And if so, you know, I'll go for that. If not, you know, worst case scenario, I leave it on all seasons. Next worst would be sw- uh, put summer tires on it and swap the rubber instead of the wheels. Yeah. Uh, which is definitely more of a pain, but right. it's, it is an option. So, yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've also always kind of shied away from doing that because I always question how much are you beating up the bead, you know, just from the on and off. Like yeah. we do that occasionally for some some clients at work um, who don't have a full wheel and tire set, and it's just that much more fatigue on the bead, you know, and the potential to damage it too, like yep. you know, with the wheel machine and stuff like that. So um, obviously, the whole set is more optimal for in two different sets, but I agree. I don't think winter tires are really necessary for you. Cause in Virginia, if you get the kind of snow that's going to require a winter tire, it's probably going to be a blizzard anyway. And you're not going anywhere. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, I've lived here for a long time and we just don't get snow all that often. And when we do, I'll either just stay in for the day or two that it's, it manages to last or we'll take a car that has, all seasons and just be extra careful because all yeah. seasons are not ideal for, for actual snow conditions, but right. Um, you know, tires are getting better every year. It seems so it's enough that I can get by with, but it's yeah. You know, Virginia drivers are not used to snow, at least not in Hampton roads area. So yeah, best just to avoid when possible. Like Pennsylvania is the same way. Like the other day it's sleeted here, which obviously ice is a whole different story, but like just the confidence I had on my winter tires was crazy and not like arrogance confidence but knowing where my traction level was as opposed to where it would have been on like an all all season tire there was somebody doing on the way home and it was in the 40s and it just rained they were doing like 25 miles an hour in a in a 50 zone and it was it's like i think it was because it was dark and they had issues with night driving and lights because she braked every time they got another car anyway i digress (laughs) um the my point was that a little bit of precipitation really shows the lack of driving skill that people have or just lack of training that we have in this country for for inclement driving yeah it would be nice if we could see an improvement in that uh i saw an interesting video on engineering explained their youtube channel uh jason was talking about the well he actually went and visited the um um, I'm going to forget the name of the of the place, but the company that does a lot of the uh, autonomous driving capability, Mobileye, I think it is, something I, okay. and uh, they have, he kind of did an in-depth with them on their autonomous system and where that market's going and really, but really focusing on what they're offering and what they're working on. And it's pretty impressive what their engineering teams are doing with their kind of holistic system of, they, they're doing something much different than what Tesla's been doing with a combination of LIDAR, radar, and cameras and the types of redundancy they're building into their systems. And 
the way it uses the data it's being provided to make decisions is pretty interesting. And in his video, they shared a number of uh, pretty tricky driving situations, even for human drivers, and the car handled it without needing to be interacted with, which was impressive. So I definitely think that, you know, autonomous driving is still a long ways out, but I was, honestly, I was surprised by the capability of the system based on my experience with Tesla and, and having seen their their systems, yeah. thinking of them as like kind of the leaders in that and then seeing what this company is doing uh, was like, okay, this is significantly better than what I've seen with Tesla thus far. Um, so that was just a neat thought, speaking of bad drivers. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned about the, the autonomous because it's kind of something that's not really talked about like it was a few years ago. Um, but I did, I think in the spring sometime, I saw an article about these two different types of radars that are being trialed and, and researched and things. I think there's a low speed radar, there's high, high and low frequency, I guess it was, but they had the ability to, one of them could wrap around a building and basically use the reflections of the negative space of the building to see around corners. And then the other one could see pedestrians through a car. I forget how it did it exactly. I'll try to I'll have to find the article again, but it was interesting because it's actually progress toward that that technology that is more than just, you know, adding ten more cameras to the car because cameras can only do so much, you know, radar and LIDAR can only do so much. It's a it's a whole package. And these two technologies I think, you know, I don't even think Tesla has them. I think it's just this company that's testing these. So it's interesting. There's still people working on it. It's just not in the news like it used to be because, you know, it's it's more involved than it leads on. Yeah, society definitely thought it was coming sooner based on largely what Elon Musk was pushing through Tesla. Mm-hmm. And then we, we quickly realized that that wasn't really reality. And we've taken a step back. And like you said, it hasn't really been in the news much. It'll be interesting when it comes back. I mean, it, I mean, obviously, there are people still working on it, like you said, and there will be a time when it becomes more prevalent. Uh, but I also, it's, you know, in, in Jason's video, they talked a lot about the regulation and how that plays a role in where autonomy will be going, uh, because it, it does make a huge difference on does regulation allow for the autonomous system to make certain decisions or not, uh, and how that kind of plays into what how much of a human-like driving experience you get with the autonomous system. Uh, and so much that is, is weighed in on regulation. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what how that plays out. So it'll be that's a cool aspect of it is really just seeing how the technology advances and plays out through you know different even different countries. Honestly, yeah, there's so much intricacy in that. I can't even imagine trying to develop that technology while keeping 20 different country regulations. Some of them don't have regulations. Some of them are considering re- like it's. The ever-changing landscape of that is probably so understated. Absolutely. Sounds, sounds yeah, like a big headache. Interesting field for I sure. I think it's a good place to end it. Um, we can... You have a few YouTube videos uh, from the JAG, correct? Or are they, are they private videos or... Yeah, no, they should be public now. I've, I've okay. tried to update the my channel a little bit. Very small, nothing nothing too fancy, but sure. feel free to, to share that uh, as it... Because, yeah, I have a few videos from the JAG and a couple of the beyond How can as well. we find you on YouTube? So my YouTube handle is at MX Moose, and that'll, that should pull it up. Does there. that have the underscore in it like Instagram does? It does not. No, it is okay. all one. I know you don't do a whole lot of posting on Instagram, but if anyone wants to see some delicious red jag footage, 
Um, you can go to Instagram, MX underscore Moose, um, find them there. Actually, two underscores now. I went crazy. Is it two? Okay. Two. And I actually don't remember the reason for changing it. Yeah, that was fun. I think it's that I had some numbers or something I, I corrected. So, yeah, it's MX and two underscores Moose. Okay. Very good. You're just trying to be extra. That's all. That's it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great chatting with you, getting caught up on everything cars and the the Jag and the Miata. It was I could have probably talked about tires for a while, so I tried to limit limit that. Um, again, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. It was great.